All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin. It is very early for me, but for my guest today, it is actually in the afternoon, which is wonderful. Before we bring him on the show, just a quick note for those of you who have sent in comments about my new album. Thank you guys very much. Uh, the Forgotten Puppet Show is show slowly releasing onto the different platforms. So keep a look on the website, scotthaskin.com, and you will see when that comes out. Now, you guys may know my guest from Trapeze. You may know him from Uriah Heep, but you should really get to know him from his new album, Easy with the Heartaches. Here he is, Peter Golby. Peter, how are you? Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Wonderful. I am so glad that you put this album out. I've listened to it a few times. So am I. Enjoying every song from beginning to end. How does it feel after all this time to finally let these songs out into the world? <laughs> It feels really strange, Scott. It makes me, it feels as though I've been away for, I think it's 32 years since I stopped completely. I was, uh, the only way that I could do it is to be in denial and pretend that I was never anything to do with the music business. And it feels like I've been up in the sky in a spaceship and I've come back and nothing's changed. Well, we're very glad to have you back. Thank you. Did you during that interim time? Did you listen to your work with Trapeze or with Uriah Heep? Did you ever put those records on? No. Wow. No. It, the best. It was the only way I could walk away was to walk away completely. Mm -hmm. You know, I think 1992 was the when I walked away, and as I say, I haven't listened to anything. I haven't been to see any bands. I've lost touch with. Anybody that was in the music business I lost touch with, um, it was just the way, that was the way I, I had to do it. I think that's understandable, though, because otherwise, you know, you have to start questioning your decisions. You have to maybe yeah. potentially live with regret. Uh, since you've now put this album and felt that, that reconnection that you've come back down to earth with us, do, have you started to listen back to that stuff? Yes. How does it feel? It's absolutely... It's really strange because when I was singing, I, I was always uncomfortable listening to my work. But because it's been such a long time, now I can listen to it as though it's not me, it's someone else. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening to this guy singing and I'm thinking, wow, he's good. <laughs> and I'm listening to, I'm listen, seriously, I'm listening to phrasing. And I'm thinking, that's really good. That's really good. I mean, there are things that you think, well, uh, I'd change that slightly. Because bear in mind, these songs were only demos. When I was with Heap, I'd spend the whole afternoon doing one vocal. Right. Trying it this way, trying it that way. The songs on my new album, or new old album, or old new album, um, the vocals were done very quickly, probably an hour or an hour and a half per song. Wow. I mean, the whole thing, what we, what we used to do, uh, there was me and my bestest pal, Paul Hodson, who, who did all the keyboards, all the arranging, all the programming. <clears throat> we did three songs at a time. So I was signed to Rondo Music as a writer. And when I got three songs together, I'd phone Paul, we'd book the studio, and we'd go in. And we'd do three, it would take us three days to complete three songs. That's 
from start to finish with the vocals, with everything done. And those songs that you're listening to, the only people involved was me and my pal, Paul Hudson. And then when the songs were complete and I'd done the vocals and we got close to a good, ready to mix the song um, in the other studio, um, Eddie, who played the solos for me, I would give him 20 quid and say, Eddie, would you put a guitar solo on this song? <laughs> and that's the way it was. That's exactly the way it was. There was no pressure. And I think the reason why the, the, the album is so strong is because there was no pressure. Yeah. Um, and it was written over probably, in reality, over probably a three to four year period. Um, there were a lot more songs, but I've ch I, I selected the songs for this album um, because I wanted it to be punchy. I didn't want it to be too soft because people are used to m me singing with heap um, and I didn't want them to be disappointed. But I, I just naturally write commercial songs. Mm -hmm. That's the way I do it. I'm not, a, I'm not a guitarist, so it's not heavy, heavy guitar influenced. M my... Uh, my strength is obviously my voice and melodies. That, that's what that's what I do. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I have to say that the album, the sound of the album is fantastic. I mean, it was recorded in the late '80s, but it sounds like it could have been done yesterday. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I think part of that is because it's not cluttered. Yeah, it's very tempting when you've got a big budget and and, you, and you're in a posh studio to just keep doing more overdubs and spend more and more time and more and more money on songs and they and then they tend to get cluttered and mishy mushy, uh, which brings me to Equator, and I think that's when we did Equator that was that was part of the problem. I still believe in the songs on Equator. If you strip it down and take away all the overdubs and all the reverb. I mean, the whole thing was just swamped in reverb. Um, if you take all that away, some people listen to equations, think it's great. And I, I've, I think I've figured out why. If you listen to it on, say, your phone or on small speakers or something, something like that, you don't get all the, the mushiness of it. You just get the song. You, you know, you can't hear all, all the overdubs. Right. But if you put it on decent-sized speakers, there's that much going on. I'm thinking, God, it's difficult to listen to it. It isn't that it's a bad album. It's, it's, it sounds bad, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and when I when I covered those seasons, because uh, every, every album is a season on the podcast, uh, that was the only complaint that I really had. It was never the writing, mm -hmm. never the performances. It was the the audio production of the albums. The, the yeah, not, diffi not just difficult. The yeah, yeah, difficult. And I mean, there's, there's been all sorts of stories that that actually isn't the final mix. Apparently, I, I someone told me that the actual final mix of Equator was actually lost. Wow. And so, um, so what happened was they did a quick job. Of a quick, quick, you know, remixing it or something. I don't know exactly what went on, but you know, for sure, the, the actual sound quality isn't very good. I mean, the amount of—if you think I won't give you any figures, 
But if, if you imagine the cost of Equator and the cost of my album, it's laughable. Oh, sure. You know? and, and yet my, my album sounds clearer because there's not much on it. That does help. But also the instruments are panned so that you can, everything gets a chance to be heard. Yes. That makes a big difference. And, and if I recall an Equator, that was my biggest complaint is that everything seemed to be in the center. Thank you. Do you know why? Because it was mono. Mm. I can remember uh, our then manager coming into the studio. We, we, were, we were nearly finished. And uh, he came into the control room and we were playing the album. And he said, it sounds like it's in mono. Mm. And it was. Because mm. Tony, who was producing, rightly or wrongly, Tony wanted to produce us so it sounded like we were would sound when we play live, mm. whether that's right or whether that's wrong, whether it's good or bad. I don't, I can't really comment. But that was done on purpose. And like you say, it's the stereo mix and where you place things. I don't know much about recording. I'm a, I was a singer. That's what I did. Sure. But if you listen to my stuff, I, I listen to my new album with earphones for the first time. And, and and that was about two weeks ago, and um, the only time I do listen do listen to music is when I'm on holiday, uh, sitting on the beach, and I always listen to it through earphones, and I listen to people like Brian Adams, for instance, or Bon Jovi, or, or, or whoever it is, and the placement of the instruments is all around your head. And you think, wow, listen to just listen to it's fantastic. And I never realized my my album has got the same sound. You know, the, the things are spread out. Not that there's that many of much stuff going on anyway. Mm -hmm. But I, I think there were so many things against Equator. Yeah. And that's why it failed. There, there were so many things. And, and apart from anything else, I'd, st I'd still like to know why we didn't use Ashley Howe, because <laughs> it just made perfect sense. We'd done two successful albums, mm -hmm. Bomb and Head First. And then I, I can't remember where I was, but it was just suddenly, an out well, Ashley's not doing this record. Mm -hmm. And it was like, what? Why are we not using Ashley? Right. So to me, that was a massive mistake. Massive mistake. Sure. Well, when you have something that works, why change it? Thank you. Exactly. It's like baking a cake. If you bake the cake once a week for the last 30 years, why change the recipe? What's exactly. the point? Yeah. I think I'll just add more salt to this. No, the cake is fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. And, and I think the phrase that I uttered most during that season, especially uh, for Equator, was I really wish I had a better mix of this this song to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. But as I say, some people really like it. And I mm -hmm. think the re if you could talk to each and every one of them, they'd probably say, yeah, well, I listen to it on my, my little phone or I listen to it, you know, in the car or, or something like that. It, it was just too complicated. It was too complicated. Whereas my, my new album is completely the opposite, mm -hmm. completely the opposite. Well, and I and you know, it sounds though like there is a lot going on in your album, even though there really isn't. Just that blend of synth and guitar really makes the album sound huge. That's me. Yeah, <laughs> that's me. Well, the thing is, 
going back to the bake in the cake, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't have five people making a cake. You'd have one person making the cake, or and, and, and maybe the kid, you know, mixing up the mixture with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think my my album sticks together really well, so, song by song, is because I was so I'm so into it because it's part of me. And like all, I did all the power chords, I did all the uh, jingly jangly Brian Adams type arpeggio stuff. Mm-hmm. And as I say, uh, we just got Eddie Morton 20 pounds a time to put a couple of solos on, and that was it. Um, but but also, I've I've said this over the last few weeks to people. When I left the band with Mickey and the Boys, when I left the band, it's almost as though there was no rush for me to dive into and finish the song, you know, get it ready for the next day or, or whatever. I took my time and thought about it. Uh, uh, and and because this, those are the best songs over a three, I think it was a three-year period. And so they're going to be strong songs. You know, you can't write really good songs all the time. No one can. Sure. It's going to, there's going to be some songs that stick out and there is going to be some songs that you think, well, that's not going to make it or that could be used as a B-side mm-hmm. or a, an album filler or something like that. But I had the luxury of writing that, those songs and they were all spread out. In fact, there was, there's more songs, but I chose to put the, the, these so, certain songs together on the album because they're they're pretty much there's a thread scott do you do you understand what i'm saying yes people have already picked up on it there's a thread going through the album it sounds like an album it doesn't sound like a bunch of songs it's that to me it sounds like it's it's got a purpose you know there is a thread and it it, it, a couple of people have said it sort of drags you in Mm mm-hmm it's very cohesive. That makes any sense. Yeah, it, it's very cohesive. It, it it really feels like it was specifically written to be an album. Yeah, but it wasn't. <laughs> that's that's what's interesting <laughs> it, about it. Yeah, you know. I mean, that's sorry to interrupt. Um, so some of those songs were written for other artists. Mm-hmm. I wrote "Easy with the Heartaches." That's the opening track, and the last track on the album is called "The Last Time." Both of those songs I wrote for Tina Turner. Now, if you if you stop and think, and imagine me not singing "Easy with the Heartaches" and imagining Tina Turner singing that songs, it would have worked perfectly for her lyrically. The whole the whole thing, the, the atmosphere. Yeah, I listened to an interview that you did recently with Trevor Hensley, where you had mentioned that. So when I listened back to the album again last night. I did exactly that. I did that with with the the idea of Tina Turner singing both of those songs. And yeah, you're right. Did you ever end up pitching those to her? Good question. Well, I didn't. I was signed to Rondo Music, and I wrote the songs. And I said to the people at Rondo, "Would you send them to Tina Turner?" Whether she ever got to listen to the songs, probably not. I don't know. I've, mm-hmm. I've no idea. But but that's that's how it was done. Um, but but they all seem to they're all in a 
there's no diversity. There's a, a definite track, you know, that they're all going down the, to me. That all all the songs on the album, although they're different to each other, there is there's this this track thread that goes through the whole thing. I am absolutely thrilled with it. I really am. I'm so excited. I was so just blown away when I heard that this album was coming out. I mean, for for one, you had, like you said, you know, you had kind of left the planet. And so when I started the podcast and I was, you know, trying to reach out to all the members of the band to see if they wanted to come on the show, uh, I the only thing I'd heard from you was that no one knew where you were. So when I saw the album come out, I was just elated that we were hearing something new from you and that you you were providing us with some more of your talent because I've always been a big fan of your voice. Thank uh, you. As I've done the the reviews of the songs, every one of them, I, I think I said, he just sounds so powerful. You know, without screaming, without hitting the, you know, really harsh low notes or anything to push it, you just have a powerful sound to your voice. Yeah. I think that um, the new album, I'm... I'm right there in my comfort zone vocally. Hmm. When we were doing the heap heap stuff, not so much the trapeze stuff, but definitely the heap stuff, heap songs uh, and all the covers that we did, Ashley was a taskmaster. He would say, come on, you know, uh, and he would get the very, very, very best that I could perform. That's one thing that Ashley did uh, for me. Um, he, He taught me a lot. Um, but you never say never. That's my new catchphrase right now is never say never. Ah. You, you know, you, 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 if you think you can't do it, the chances are that you probably can. Um, but um, on the new album, there are no what I would call big, big notes. Mm-hmm. You know, top D or something like that. You know, the, your Lou, Lou Grammer area. Um, but... Um, it was it wasn't done consciously um i think it was because uh when i wrote the songs oh, in the back of my mind i was hoping to get lots of covers so i didn't want how can i put this if me and mickey had have done this album together or me and mickey and the band it would have come out a lot heavier some of the songs we probably wouldn't have used because they're not heavy enough. But things like um, "They'll Never Find Us," which is one, of, which is actually my favourite songs on the song on the album. Um, in fact, I'm trying to get Mickey to record it if he's if he's watching, if he's listening, oh. um, because it, it, we would have killed that. The heap line with me singing at that time would have absolutely killed that song. I could see that. I I could definitely see that. Uh it's you know yeah, it's, it's a little yeah. bit heavier of a song for for the album That's in right. comparison. And yeah, well, I, I listen, think Mick would have been great. Yeah, if you listen to it, it's got the same parts as Blood Red Roses. It's got that big intro. Mm-hmm. It's got that big melody. Uh and it's got the chorus. That um, they'll never they'll never find us is my, if you like, um, baby. We were born to run. Ah. Um, bon Jovi, uh, living on a prayer. Mm-hmm. Just, just you know, we're running away. They're never going to get us. And that that's the whole theme of that song. And I still say 
that if he did it, it would be absolutely fantastic. They'd make an incredible job. When I wrote Blood Red Roses, I didn't actually record Blood Red Roses before I sent it. I sent Mick, <clears throat> the copy that I sent to Mick was me playing the, the chords mm-hmm. and then I'd play that back on one ghetto blaster in my bedroom and then I'd play along with what I'd already recorded and so what Mick got was very, very basic. But I, I could hear it, in, I can always hear it in my head as though it's a finished thing. It might sound ridiculously stupid to someone listening to it, and I think, that's, that's rubbish, that's shit. <laughs> well, you, but, no, but, but that's how we did it back if then. The, if, if, if it works with me sitting in the bedroom with a rockman and singing along to a few chords, if it works there, the only way is up. In other words, when you start getting a good bass, bass player and a drummer, keyboard it just then goes completely to a much much higher level oh absolutely but as i say they'll never find us you right hope you must record it you must record it well but but you know thinking back to those days when i was a kid too before we had portable four track recorders i had two yeah. you know cassettes from kmart you record on one yeah. you play that you record on the other that's how we multi-tracked back then that's how that's we it. Put that's our how ideas. i did it yeah exactly that's, that, that's what I, that's how i did blood and roses but as I say, um, the reason I keep it on about that, that they'll never find us is because if you listen, if you strip the songs down, they are very, although they sound nothing like each other, the, the components are all there in both songs. Yeah, I'm going to have to do a comparison between the two now. I love Blood Red yeah. Roses. I think it's a great song. I was so glad that you... I was so jealous, Scott. Yeah? Yeah, I was, I was so jealous because when, uh, when I heard it, because... I've ne- I've never done a version of it, and it wouldn't have been f- very different to the way the boys did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to hear it completely finished, because the last time I heard it was me singing into a tape machine with and bl- blasting out my Rockman. That was that was the last I heard of the song, and then the next thing I see, it's it's, it's walking down the aisle with Mickey. <laughs> it's fantastic, <laughs> absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, I think they're both great songs, and I agree. I would love to hear Uriah Heep record it. One thing that uh, that I wanted to ask you about, um, you actually have something in common with Ian Gillen. Uh, Ian Gillen, uh, very early on in his career, now, of course, he's been singing for Deep Purple for the last, you know, most of his life, but uh, he was very heavily influenced by Dusty Springfield, as you were. He used to open for Dusty. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's really, that's really strange, because... When Trevor asked me the question, and uh, before we even started the interview, and I said, well, I'll tell you something. Uh, I always tell the truth. I said, sometimes it gets me into trouble. I said, but I, I was brought up, I was told that if you tell the truth, everything will work out. I said, so whatever question you ask me, I will tell you the truth. And I think he nearly fell off the chair when, it, when I said <laughs> what my favorite singer was Dusty Springfield. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dusty made such great music. And at the time, you know, if you think about what was going on in, in the music world oh, at the yeah. time, so innovative. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I watched, um, I discovered uh, Sky Arts, which is a, a, a program that's on in the UK. Uh, I only discovered it um, in the summer of this year. And they play... It's not just music, it's art. It could be painted, landscape painting, it could be pottery, it could be sculpture, it could be anything. But um, 
every day in the afternoon, we've got 70s, 80s and 90s music on. Absolutely fantastic. And Dusty was on about three days ago, and my wife said, your girl's on, your girl's on. (laughs) (laughs) I just love it. Not so much the the early stuff, but the, the, the... what we all call and know as the powerhouse stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I only want to be yeah. with you and all. And, and, and some of the songs are just dynamite. Absolutely dynamite songs. Clever, so clever. Very clever. Especially that song, I Only Want to Be With You. When I think about that recording, you know, here's one thing that I can, I can compare that to you as well and, and a handful of other singers is that I really feel the passion of that coming through when you're singing and you're talking about, you know, let's run away from this and, and just, you know, we're going to be okay. I feel mm-hmm. that, you know, there's so many people that just sort of read the lyrics and I don't feel that they're in the story, but I've always felt that with you with dusty. Well, there's a big difference there. Do you, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 It's something that, that I just obviously just do naturally. Mm-hmm. I can remember working with, um, Uli Roth, you know, guitar player, Uli John Roth. Mm-hmm. I did a thing with him, and and he, he, he got me down to his house, and um, he'd been asking me and asking me to do this symphonic rock for Europe, and I kept saying no, and then he, he, he sent me two or three, I think he sent me two songs, and, and they were really good, really good, and I said, okay, I'm going to do it for you, and um, it was me and John Parr, and we went down to uh, Uli's house. Uh, uh, I actually met Monica, you know, Monica Danneman, mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix's girlfriend. Yeah. Because she, she was living with Uli. And she cooked me a meal. There you go, my claim to fame. <laughs> she cooked me a meal. And, and anyway, so we, we were running through the, some of the songs with Uli, John Parr and myself next to the piano and and early was looking at me and he put his head on one side and he said you know he said you do the strangest thing some of your phrasing he said he's just he said you probably don't even know you're doing it do you i said doing what he said you don't know then do you he said you you you, you, do, you got this way it's just the way that i i don't know if i knew what it was i, I could explain it a lot easier but um yes uh, i'm not I naturally do things um, not on purpose. It just it's just the way that it happens. Well, it's just the way that you feel the music. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, here's a very quick story. Um, when I was when I was sixty years old, my mother and I got into a bit of an argument. It was a bit of an, a family argument, and over the years, a few people have said to me, especially one of my cousins, a female cousin, um, <clears throat> and she, she used to say, I know the Golby secrets. And Uh-oh. I never understood, I never understood what she meant. Anyway, cut a long story short. You might know this, you might not know this. Um, <clears throat> when I was 60 years old, my mother confessed that my father wasn't actually my father. Oh, wow. Which was, can you imagine that? It knocked me on the floor. It, yeah. I, it killed me. Yeah. But do you know what's weird? Do you know what's weird? No. My real father, who was supposed to be 
um, the guy that I thought was my father's friend. <laughs> so this is what goes on in life. Anyway, cut a long story short, my real father was a singer. Wow. Isn't that weird? Must have just been in the genes, huh? It's really strange, and, and I've, I've said that from that day to this. Had I known that all along, my life might have, might have taken a different course. In other words, I might not have stopped singing. Yeah. Because it all makes sense. He was a singer, and he played the piano professionally. Wow. Isn't that strange? You know, there are just so many moments, it seems, in life that one decision could change the course of everything. Yeah. You know, and you had mentioned in your in your interview with Trevor that had Facebook been around in the 80s that you might yeah. not have stopped singing because you didn't know how much people appreciated what you did. 100 percent. I've just put my hand on the heart. Seriously. Peter, that breaks my heart. <laughs> if, if, I, if I'd have known people were really behind me. I'd, I wouldn't have stopped. And, and, and again, knowing why I was born to sing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a pivotal moment, pivotal moment. Sure. But you guys back in those days, you guys were untouchable. I couldn't just, you know, call somebody up and say, hey, I'd like to get an interview with Peter. Oh, OK. I mean, unless you were in a national magazine, that wasn't going to happen. People couldn't really reach you guys to tell you the way that we can now. I think that's sad no. that artists don't. Uh, and even now, a lot of people won't take the yeah. time to tell you they'll complain. They'll tell you what's wrong, but they won't take the time to tell you this song really touched my heart. You know, exactly. it's it's sad. Yeah. Over the years, because <clears throat> some of my songs got boot. That's another thing with my album. It's been bootlegged twice. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, that was quick. Honestly, that's part of the reason why I agreed to do all this, because when we lost Trevor uh, and then we lost Lee, and then we lost Ken, then John Lawton. This is all part of all part and parcel of the package that made me say, "Look, <clears throat> when I go, some bugger is going to bootleg it again." And so I thought, "Well, why don't I say yes now, and we'll get it out, and we'll get it, set, we'll you know remaster it digi digi digitally." I can't even say digitally. It's a tough one. Um, yeah. Make it sound posh. But, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, that's that's part of the reason why I'm sat here today talking to you is because if we're going to do it, let's get it out and make it as good as we can possibly get it to sound. Yeah. Now, were you able over the, the course of the 32 years, were you able to just forget that you did this or every once in a while did it kind of creep in your head and go, I really wish I would do something with this? Um, it's very weird um, because... It's great. It's been great fun in a lot of ways because a lot of people that I have known over the, since I've stopped since I stopped singing, uh, I'm not the kind of person that stands leaning against the bar and says, "Do you know who I am?" or "Do you know who I used to be?" Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. That's not me. I don't say anything. And there are people today still finding out that you never told me you were a singer. <laughs> and it's just so funny, a lot, especially a lot of um, my wife's friends, and you know, because we've got horses and we we mix with horsey people. Um, 
and they're absolutely blown away, and especially now with the album coming out, mm-hmm. and, and Neighbours and people like that. I mean, only, the, I think I said this with Trevor uh, about a week or so ago, I was walking the dogs down the lane, and my neighbour pulled up in the car next to me, and, and, and she said, your album is fantastic. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, what a start to the day. Mm-hmm. What a what what a fantastic thing for somebody to say to you, yeah. you know. But um, it's it's all it's all a bit overwhelming for me to tell you the truth. Oh, uh, I'm sure I love it. it. Is. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it, and uh, I'm so thrilled. I'm more than anything. I'm very very proud, and sometimes um, I, I go onto YouTube, and as I say, there's some bootleg. Some of those tunes are up there that were bootlegged. Um, and some of the comments that people make, it brings tears to my eyes because they really get it. Right. You know, I can remember, you know, with, with certain songs and you think when I, when I was writing this song and that song and they'll say, oh, it's, it, it reminds me of Thin Lizzy or it reminds... And I think that's why... that's That's what... That's what I was thinking when I was writing it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they get it. Right. They get it. It's 30 years on. And yet there are people that never saw me sing at all because they're probably, you know, five years old at the time. Right. Um, and they're listening to me uh, and, and songs that, that, that I've written. And they totally get it. And, and I think, how incredible. And that, that's part and parcel of the reason why I said to you, had we got the internet and people were, were, were able to communicate directly or indirectly to the artists, I think a lot of people would have been a lot happier in doing, you know, continuing doing what they were doing. Sometimes you feel as though you're banging your head against the wall, yeah. you know, because especially when it's, we were so busy, we were so busy all the time, um, we were very successful. Everybody wanted us to go and play in this country and that country. And as I said, you know, many times, I've, I've, I think I filled, I think I filled three passports in four years, five years. There was no, there was no space to put any more country stamps in there. And and Mick is still doing it. He is, yeah. I, I, I'd love to know the the total amount of passports that Mick has used. Well, and the touring schedule that you guys had was absolutely ridiculous. And that was a thing in that time in the seventies and the eighties. So many bands, if you were successful, you were going to be overworked to death. Yeah. You know, I, I look at Purple. And and think about, you know, how many times did I hear John Lord say if they just would have let us take a month off or three months or six months off, the Martu yeah. lineup would have stayed together for a long time. Yeah. But they pushed and pushed I used and pushed. To say, I used to have those conversations with Mick. Mm-hmm. You know, why don't we just do a bit less? You know, that it just killed me. In the end, it killed me. You know, um, my voice didn't give up. My voice never gave up. Um, but mentally... I think I'm probably, I was the person that invented mental health. I was thinking about it the other day. I think I picked it up in some foreign country and brought it back. (laughs) (laughs) I do, honestly, because at that that time, if you say mental health, did people just look at you? No, it's it's all day long. That's all you hear is mental health. And we're, we're all under so much stress and strain. 
Well, I was under all of that, you know, from 1982 to 85. It was, you know, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And that that was all part and parcel of the, you know, the, the mouse on the wheel. I remember we did, we did India. We, I mean, there's so many memories. And people say to me, you should write a book. Yeah. And I think yeah. maybe I should. Maybe I should. Um, but but in the end, I was just completely burnt out, completely yeah. mentally. And then the, fi- the final straw really was uh, Equator. I was so heartbroken. I was so disappointed. You know, n- not in the, the, the sound and so much of the record, but we, we, got, we, we had no support whatsoever. We arrived in Australia and I was met off the plane by three representatives from CBS Records. And I can remember as we came down, it was like the Beatles getting off an aeroplane, and there were these three, three guys from CBS, and they handed us all a little present each, and I thought, it's a watch. They've given me a watch. It was a, it was a bloody pen knife. <laughs> what? That's a random a, pen, a, ni- a, a, a knife, a folding knife. <laughs> what, what were you supposed to do they with that? They probably thought we were going to get stuck in, get stuck in the outback and it would probably save our lives. <laughs> well, but yeah. We, 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 we were in Australia, and they didn't even know that Equator was out. And that's uh, our record company. Oh, uh, yeah. And it, Mick and I looked at each other, and it was like, what are we doing? And as I say, then we did 36 days, 36 shows in 42 days. And on the four days that I had to take off, because I did lose, I'd got laryngitis. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of thinking, and I thought, I can't keep doing this. But going full circle... We did very often talk. I did very often talk to Mickey and say, "Well, why don't we just tour for six months <laughs> and and have some time off?" But we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it because it, financially we couldn't do it. Yeah, it was it was that mach- it, that machine, Scott. You know, there were fifteen people I think at one point. There's five people in the band and ten people road crew, and every day that you were out there and you weren't playing. It was costing lots of money, keeping people in a hotel doing nothing. Sure. And so that's the rock and roll machine. And so we have to keep doing more and more and more. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, I, all I've touched on really is all the negative side of it. But there were some fantastic positive sides to it as well. You know, we had a great time. We were treated fantastically well. Um, you know, some of the some of the gigs that we did were just incredible. I can remember. Um, I've got. Um, I say I. It's not me. Some kind people started a Facebook page. You know, my Pete Golby uh, Facebook page a couple of years ago, and um, there's there's some great pictures on there. And somebody a, 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 a few weeks ago, or a couple of months ago. Um, Put on. Actually, it's Kevin Julie in Canada. Kevin Ju- Julie has stuck with me all this all this time, and he's he's trying to persuade me to come back, come back. And anyway, I'm finally back. Um, but he he posted a picture of me and Mickey doing the Texas Jam. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you're a, 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 a aware of that gig. Oh, yeah. It happens every year mm-hmm. in 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 Dallas and Houston. Uh, and I think eight, I think it was. I don't know whether my dates are correct, but it's. I think 81, I did it with trapeze, and 82, or 82 and 83. So I did 
trapeze, and then a year later, I did it with Uriah Heep, and it was 60,000 people. And I saw the picture the, a few weeks ago, and I thought, shit, look at the size of the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd completely forgotten it, because as I say, when I walked away, I, I almost killed Pete Goldby. I, I, I almost killed, you know, I had to put him to sleep. That was that was the way of dealing with it. Is pretending he never existed, but looking at some of the stuff now, you think, "Wow!" I was watching Sky Arts and going back to the television. Sky Arts a few weeks ago, watching the Eagles live, and I said to Lynn, my wife, I said, "Look at the size of that crowd. There must have been fifteen, twenty thousand people there." And then the commercial break came on, and it was the LA Forum, and we did it twice. Wow. Was it, was I didn't there, even realize I'd done that. Did, did it ever matter to you when you walked on stage to see a, a 15,000 crowd or a 60,000 crowd? Did it make no, a difference for you? It, never, never, never entered my head. Mm-hmm. We were just doing what we did, yeah. whether it was 500 um, people or 50,000. You know, we did um, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the very first gigs that I did was Castle Donington. You know, the, oh, yeah. The, and that was the beginning of it all for us. We 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 did great, you know. It was raining. <laughs> mm. It was raining. I think we were second on. Uh, I think Anvil, a Canadian band, were on first. Then us. I think Status Quo, uh, Hawkwind. I can't remember. I think Status Quo were headlining, and I, I can always remember. Uh, we we went on, and did the Wizard. And I think that changed everything because all, all the bands want to come on and blow the place apart. And we didn't try and do that. We, we, we tried to set, set ourselves aside from that. And I, I can always remember. Um, it was just, that was the start. And within, within two or three weeks of us doing Castle Donington, every, every country in Europe wanted us to go and play there. Yeah. It was just great. Sure. Incredible. Did some incredible gigs. Incredible gigs. Well, I'm glad that you have retained those memories, and I hope that it, and, and I, I, I hate this word, so please forgive me for not finding a better word, Peter, but do you feel, after all of this now, putting this album out, seeing what people have to say about it and, and you, do you feel validated now from what you didn't get before in the 80s? Yes. Yes, I, I do. And my wife said exactly the same to me. She said, you're a happy man now. Hmm. And I am. I'm. I'm just so happy now. Um, it makes you. Th- I'm just not speaking because because I'm trying to think at the same time. <laughs> it's it, it, it's just mind-boggling to think what would have been. I'd love to be a fly on the wall. If I, I, I don't regret anything. Mm-hmm. I don't regret doing it. I don't regret stop regret stopping doing it, and I don't regret putting the album out now uh, for everybody to see. But as I say, if, if I'd been away in a spaceship and I'd come back and nothing's changed, what would it, where would we have gone? Right. Where, where would it have gone? You know, mm-hmm. it, it would be amazing to be, to be able to look into a crystal ball and say, well, you know, um, it didn't end. It certainly didn't end at all for Mickey and the boys after I went. You know, the, the band is still fantastic, absolutely yeah. fantastic. 
I don't know how Mickey does it. I don't know how he does it, but he's, he's whatever he's on, tell him to send me some. <laughs> uh, because it must be so taxing, you know. Uh, it's hard work. And it was, it was hard work when I was in my 30s, you know, and Mickey, Mickey's got to be the same age as me. I, I don't know, maybe a year behind or maybe a year in front. And to be, be still doing it and doing it so well, it must be absolutely fantastic. God bless him. God yeah, bless him. I, I agree. And, he, he, you know, the first time that I saw Heap Live was uh, a, a couple of years before the pandemic. And uh, you could not, the whole show, you couldn't slap the smile off of his face. He just loves being mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah. We used, we used to have a ball. I mean, we were doing all the festivals, uh, as the boys are still doing. And it was absolutely great. And there was like a circuit of, uh, 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 that everybody did. And it would be um, Motorhead, Ian Gillen, band, not with the Purple, when he was on his own. Uh, Gary Moore, uh, Girls' School, I can't remember. A whole bunch of us. And you'd find that nearly every weekend we'd, we'd all be on the same bill, but in a different country. Right. You know, doing festivals, and the ta- the times I can't tell you that w- w- we were always headlining. Which you were, I, can you imagine me? I come from Trapeze, and then suddenly, although Trapeze was a great band, um, not wasn't a headline band. Um, so for me to suddenly be thinking, well, we're not on till half past ten tonight. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and we're there at two o'clock in the afternoon. You think, well, what are we going to do till half past ten tonight? But the point I'm going to get to in a minute is, I think we caused so many internal arguments with all those other bands because we used to blow the place apart. Mm-hmm. No matter who was on and how how well they'd done, we would come on, and you see, we would win. It was always a win-win-win situation because we got that catalogue of songs. Right. You know, we got Easy Living, we got The Wizard. Just so many songs to look to to, to, to look, you know, from the history, and then we we also got the Abominog songs as well and the Headfirst songs, and we were, you know, I can say this honest honestly. And I don't want to upset anyone, but we used to blow it. Wherever we went, they knew we'd been. Mm. You know, we would we would always grab the headlines because it was such a solid band. And it still is. It's a, it hasn't really changed. Mm-hmm. It's just great songs. It's all to, it's, it's down to the, you know, it's, at the end of the day, it's down to the music. And as I, I've said, since doing some interviews, with various people over the last couple of weeks, you know, I really, really loved the music, but I hated the music business. Well, that's it for a lot of people, you know, uh, and I think that yeah. there's a certain amount of disillusionment from fans that think that, you know, it's a glamorous rock and roll lifestyle. You might play for no, two hours, <laughs> but you've got 22 hours to fill before your yeah. next gig, you know, in a city that you don't live in, where you don't know your way around. Uh, there's so much more to it. It's like an actor. You know, people think about the time that they're actually acting and filming. But there's, you know, for every five minutes that you're acting, you're probably 45 minutes sitting around waiting for the, yeah. the thing to be reset. 
it's it, the yeah. entertainment business is not as glamorous as we make it out to be. No, I can I can remember being in Australia, and we did a Hell's Angels. Uh, it was a biker convention. Mm-hmm. And you know what time? It, it was a festival, and it had been going on. Um, on I think it was the, the Saturday and the Sunday, and we were on on the Sunday night. Well, we thought we were on on Sunday night. We were actually on on Monday morning. We were on at half past four in the oh, a.m. Wow. <laughs> Honestly, you ask Mickey if, if he remembers that gig. I, I, can't, I, I can't remember where it was, but it was, it was Australia, and it was a biker. The Hell, it was the Hells Angels annual get-together, and we, were, we weren't on until something like half past four in the morning. But they were still awake. I thought everybody would be lying on the floor asleep, but they weren't. It was, it was just incredible. Well, I mean, even even if they had been, I have a feeling that when you guys took the stage, you would have just woken them all up. Well, uh, yeah. Poss- yeah. M- maybe they were, and maybe they did get up. No. But as I say, I've got some incredible memories. Incredible memories. Well, here's what I would encourage you to do, and totally up to you, just, just my intruding uh, suggestion. Grab a notebook. And just anytime you think of one of those stories, just jot a few notes down about it and then just take a look at it. And if you decide that, you know, I think I would enjoy writing a book, do it. Well, Bob did one. Yeah. Bob Daisley. Yeah, just recently. Yeah. yeah. I haven't read it. I haven't had the chance to either. Uh, but I don't, I, even, I don't even know whether I'm, I'm, I might not be in the book. You never know. But you might. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I mean, Bob, but just, just as I say... I can think of each member separately in turn and just think of so many stories. Bob, Bob was great, very talented, great guy. Uh, Lee, fantastic drummer, absolutely fantastic drummer. John Sinclair, not only is he one of the best keyboard players on the planet, he is the funniest man on the planet. He made me laugh so much. John Sinclair. Oh, that's awesome. I love him. Well, I I, I could talk to you for hours, Peter. I have no doubt of that. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. Uh, otherwise, I would love to just keep going. But I want to thank you, uh, not only no for problem. taking time to talk to me, a stranger that you don't know on the other side of the world, but for putting this album out, for giving us a chance to hear these songs. Everybody who's listening to this show, I highly recommend listening to this album. I've got the links in the show notes where you can purchase it. I've also got a link to the Facebook group in there that Peter was talking about. Um, I, I'm so glad to see you, to know that you're okay, and to hear your voice on these amazing songs. It's it's a fantastic album. I will enjoy this over and over. I promise you that. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Will you take care of yourself anytime you, I will. Uh, you want? You are welcome back here yeah. any day. Well, yeah, I'll just say one thing. Mm-hmm. What this has done for me is proved to me that I was right. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. With, with the music, with the album coming out and the reaction that we're getting, it, it makes me feel so proud. And I know that I was right. I was listening to, the, you know, listening to the songs. You know, I, any one of those songs, to me, any one of those songs on the album stands up so well. And, and thinking that they're 32 years old. Well, that's that's the thing. It's like I said, it, it sounds like it could have been recorded recently just with some 80 synthesizers. Yeah, you know, it, it has that quality to it. But no, I, I'm very glad to hear that you're that you're happy that you put the effort in and did this. Uh, I also love the autograph card that I got with my CD. That was a nice touch. Thank you. 
Yeah, we did. I was asked to do that. I spent, I'm looking out of my window now. I'm looking at a horse, actually. It's about 15 feet away from me, from my window. But this is, this is a bench, and I can remember sitting on the bench uh, a few months ago, and I, I signed 500 CDs, so the first 500 CDs uh, would have been autographed. Oh, that's, yeah, that's awesome, and I'm sure, I'm sure that was a bit of a chore after about the first 20. No, I, I was excited at the time. I wouldn't want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter, thank you so much. I wish you the absolute best. I cannot thank you enough for this wonderful album. Uh, I, I'm really glad that you you got what you needed out of it. That really, as, as a fan, that means more to me than even how much I enjoyed the music. Say hello to the boys in the band. I absolutely will do that. You take care, my friend, and uh, and keep reading those posts because people will be loving this absolutely until the end of time. Thank you. God bless. I have to say, in all honesty, that was such a treat for me to be able to sit down and talk to Peter Golby and hear some stories from the old days, talk about his new album. The time just went so fast. There was so much more I wanted to cover. I wanted to talk about, you know, each of the individual songs. We were going to do that. But, you know, the time went fast. Uh, I had to get to my day gig. So uh, we had to, to end the interview. But it was such a good time talking to him. I hope that you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, maybe we'll see Peter back on the show one of these days before it's over. You know, we still got 95 episodes or so to go before this one's done. But I will still be continuing uh, interviews, I think, after the show is over. I'll just be doing them on YouTube. I won't be able to do any song reviews with the artist because of the clearances for, uh, you know, getting the channel cleared so that I don't get hit with copyright violations and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, you never know what will happen down the road. But, you know, I, I get offered interviews uh, quite a bit and most of them I take, some of them I don't. But yeah, Peter is definitely welcome back on the show anytime that he wants to be. So uh, just just for those of you guys that don't listen to the Magicians podcast that I do for Uriah Heap, um, my first interaction with Uriah Heap was the Abominog album, seeing the video for That's the Way That It Is on MTV. That was my first known connection to Uriah Heap. I used to be a great fan of the radio back in the 70s and in the early 80s. I listened to it quite a bit. And so it is certainly very possible that I had heard Uriah Heep before maybe The Wizard, maybe Lady in Black or Easy Living, who knows. But but that's the way that it is, was the first time I saw Uriah Heep and connected them to a song. So this would be in the early, you know, pretty early days of MTV. And I really liked the song, got the 45 of it. Yes, the 45 RPM, small, mini-sized LP with the giant hole in the middle. I always found that ironic. The small record has the large hole in the middle. The big record has the tiny hole in the middle. I, I always found that fascinating. But for the for the 45, you had to have like one of those round plastic bits that you could stick in the middle so that it would stay on the turntable. Lots of fun. But the 45, it didn't come in an open paper sleeve. It came in a closed sleeve and had the Abominog uh, picture on the cover of it. I don't remember what was on the back. I think the B-side, I think I decided that it was Son of a Bitch if I remember right. Um, that was a long time ago, but I did have the 45 of the song. I, I liked it that much. We didn't have a lot of money back then, but every, you know, what, three or four weeks we could get a 45. And that was the one I picked for that month. So uh, congratulations, Uriah Heep. 
but that was before I knew, you know, who David Byron was, who Ken Hensley was, even who Mick Box was. I just saw this video. I'm like, wow, these guys are great. I love this song. And then uh, I remember Stay On Top came out. I remember there was a video from that. And of course, uh, that was another one that I was just like, wow, this is another great song. And um, and that was my intro to Uriah Heep. And so, um, you know, of course, I went and got the back catalog and started learning all the older albums and going forward from there. And uh, God, they're such a great band. But anyway, uh, I will have links in the show notes to all three seasons of the uh, Uriah Heep podcast that I do, where uh, Peter Golby played on those three albums. And uh, you can enjoy any of those individual episodes. And you know what? I'm so excited. I want to talk about this album because first off, uh, this is something I never imagined would happen. So this was a huge treat for me this year. There was some cool albums that came out. Uh, Deep Purple came out with their new album, Turning to Crime, which I'll be reviewing shortly. Blackmore's Night reissued the Winter Carols album, which is a favorite of mine. So that was a nice surprise. But but honestly, musically, the best surprise all year was this album, Easy with the Heartaches by Peter Golby. And uh, I love this little insert card. It's a, a smaller picture of the cover. It has to be smaller because it has to fit inside the case. And it is hand-signed. He hand-signed 200 of them. So I have one of those. They're not numbered, so I don't know which number it is, but I also don't care. The fact is I have a beautifully done card with Peter's autograph on it. And it is not a, you know, a screen printed replication. That's actually him signing it, which is really cool. But I love the artwork. I think it's beautiful. Um, This is actually the kind of thing I'm surprised I haven't put on a mental sauna album because it just has that, you know, little bit of solitude to it, beauty of nature. It's it's sort of like you're in a, a cave and it has those colors, but there's also a beautiful waveform uh, sort of meshed into the wall, but appears to be coming out of the wall at the same time. It's pretty neat. It looks a little rounded off towards the right, like it's coming out at you. And the colors are a little bit different than what's in the background, obviously. So it looks, so you could tell it's kind of like a sound wave, uh, but it's absolutely beautiful. I've only been to a cave one time and sadly it, I did not go all those years that I lived in Colorado Springs. I never went to the cave of the winds we went to some caves on the way back from a family event in Ohio, coming back to Michigan. I don't remember where they were, but they were really cool going down in the ground. You've got the stalagmites, the stalactites. You know, this has been there for millions of years. Um, real amazing formations that are created by drips of water. It's just, it's mind boggling to me, these treasures that we have inside the planet. So I love this cover. I absolutely, I absolutely identify it. The CD, however, uh, is really interesting. And this, (laughs) I've said this before about Uriah Heep because, uh, well, I know it's been intentional on some of those covers like, um, you know, Demons and Wizards. There's penises in those rocks. Let's not, let's not uh, beat around the bush. (laughs) There, there are penises in those rocks. This, however, and and a lot of breasts on what Magician's Birthday. There was another one. I can't think of what it is off the top of my head where there was a, a woman's breast. Or an animal, it was like a woman, animal, something, uh, brass, like a, a warrior, I think it was. Oh, it's Fallen Angel, I think. So I'm looking at the CD itself, and it's, it, you know, it's very cave-like. Uh, if you were walking through a cave, you would kind of expect to see this sort of formation. However, I am going to throw out there that it does look kind of vaginal. I don't know if that's the intent, but it really specifically looks vaginal. So, uh it, if that is or is not the case, 
It's a beautiful piece of artwork. I, I love the CD. Uh, you don't see it when you're playing it anyway, but um, yeah, that was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, the inside cover is done very nicely as well, as well as the back. Very nice fonts, very easy to read. Beautiful browns and oranges and yellows and reds. It's it's just a beautifully done cover. I love it. I got, um, I guess this would be the, the Digipack CD. And um, there's some really nice words in there from Peter and, you know, he he makes a point here that we talked about on the show and he said in other interviews, um, there were a lot of rumors that even I heard back when we didn't have the Internet that it was his voice that gave out and he had to stop singing and all this stuff. He is very clear to point out that just for the record, my voice did not give up. I did. And, you know, we talked about this on the show. If you guys listened to the interview portion, I'm sure you did. Uh, it, it just, when I heard him talk about how he didn't know he had the support that he had. And I think that is one of the biggest injustices in today's society. You know, we have all these beautiful forms of communication. You can communicate with people in seconds. And yet mostly what you see is people complaining, people wanting things from other people, but not as much hey, I just wanted to let you know that you're awesome or I'm so glad we met or I was just thinking of you and I wanted to check on you. How much of that do you see in comparison to this product sucks? This album isn't any good. This band sucks. They should quit. You know, you see so much negative out there. And that, as I've said many times on my other show, is one of the reasons that I barely look at social media anymore. I get on, I post, I check on a couple people. I'm out of there. Because, you know, for me, it just it just becomes a very depressing sea of of just anger and accusation, blame. You know, if you if you don't think the way I do, then you're an idiot. And it's not that there isn't there. There isn't that much. There isn't that much of it out there in the world. But when you're on the Internet, it's all just kind of collected in, into, you know, one place. I've been shocked at some of the things that people that I had considered intelligent, big-hearted friends have posted and said. Um, I've been personally attacked for not making statements about political issues, um, saying that I'm part of the problem because I don't have to be, you know, because I'm not adding to the noise. Uh, it's it's just ridiculous. So the flip side of that is what Peter said when he said, if we had Facebook in the 80s, and I had a way to know that I had the support that I had, I wouldn't have quit. How fucking sad is that? I mean, really, how is it that you could be in this big band, so well-known, they're in magazines, they're in festivals, they're playing ridiculous amounts of gigs because the demand for them is so high, and yet the fans didn't have ways to reach out to the band and say, other than look at your number of sales or look at the number of people that are showing up at your concerts... But as individual artists, you don't know if it's because of the band as the whole, if people really care about you. We just didn't have a way to communicate that now. Now we do, but we also have ways to communicate all the, you know, this band should quit and they're getting old and all these things that you hear people say about different bands. Um, you know, if you don't like it, just tune out. You don't have to to say anything mean. It doesn't benefit anybody except, you know, you're going, hey, look at me. I'm cool because I made a statement. Um, absolutely ridiculous, the, the stuff that I see. So I very rarely look at posts. If you guys are responding, you know, to the podcast and stuff, I may not see it if it's directly on Podbean or if it is on um, Apple Podcasts or, or iTunes, that feedback I do see. I don't see it in a lot of other places. So, um, you know, like Facebook and stuff, don't even look. 
I, I just don't. Um, there's just too much negativity there, and I, I don't need it. I just don't. So uh, that being said, I'm very grateful that um, Peter released this album in spite of all that. I'm very glad he's happy now. He deserves it. He's a very nice man, a very talented musician. I'm so glad I had the chance to talk to him. Maybe I'll get another chance. I hope so. Because, uh, you know, the guy's got some stories, too. You know, uh, three, you know, three album tours on the road. That's a lot. It's a lot more than a lot of people get. And I'm sure the things that he's he, things that he's seen have been pretty wild. Um, but let's dig into this album because I think it's a fantastic album. Um, now, what's going to be interesting about this, and I don't know, obviously, because I, I'm going to do the reviews as I play each clip. Um, but having listened to this album a bunch of times now, and, and I really do love every song on it, um, my feedback may start to sound a little bit redundant because I think what I love about one song is the thing I love about pretty much all the songs. And so um, I hope it's not going to sound too stale or not, you know, that I'm not passionate about it because I am. I think it's a fantastic album. Um, but the the songs have that a very similar, very cohesive sound. So there's only so much that you could say about that, um, or at least me with my level of brain capacity. Uh, but uh, just to give you the rundown on lead and backing vocals, as well as guitar, we've got Peter Golby. On guitar solos, we've got Eddie Morton. And on keyboards, drums, and bass program, we have Paul Hudson. So three guys made all this happen. It was mastered by uh, Mike Piertini. I hope I'm saying that right. Artwork by Michael Innes and project management by Daniel Earnshaw. That's it, guys. That's the whole crew that made this album. Um, as an audio engineer, as I said on the show, I think it sounds fantastic. I think it sounds like it was recorded today using vintage gear. It's that clean. It's that clear. I absolutely love it. So what we're going to do right now is we're just going to dig into the first song, which happens to be the very title of the album, Easy with the Heartaches. You know, it, it occurs to me, thinking back on the three seasons of Uriah Heep, the Magician's podcast that I did covering the three albums that Peter was on with them, I remember just thinking how every single song, his voice was strong, it was consistent, it was smooth, it had that emotion that you felt like he was really singing from the experience and not just telling the story, not reading the words on the page. And uh, right off the bat, you know, listening to him sing a little more gently um, than that he did on the majority of the songs because, you know, they're a heavier band um, just, just goes to show how smooth his voice is. And I've always loved that. I love when he does the gentler stuff, thinking about Tina Turner in, in contrast of this song um, in contrast to his voice singing, I could definitely hear her doing this song. Um, I think it would have suited her very well. Still could. If you're listening, Tina, I'm sure that you could license this song from Peter and cover it. 
<laughs> I'm sure he would let you. Um, but I love the guitars. I love the the uh, volume balance of the guitar and the keyboards. I think this is an incredibly well-mixed album. And speaking as somebody who's been an, an audio engineer for 30 years and is incredibly picky about sound, uh, I think it sounds fantastic. Um, I love the cowbell. I think that's great. It definitely has that 80s sound with it. Um, I love going from the, the guitar opening to the more muted notes. That's really cool, too. And I can tell you that this song has just an absolutely perfect fade at the end. It is not too long, not too short, not by a millisecond. It is absolutely perfect, in my opinion. And this is just a great way to set the tone for what we're about to get here on these 11 tracks. Because like I said, what you heard, the sound quality there is very consistent on every single one of them. And considering this is a 30-year-old recording, you know, it sounds pretty amazing. Our second song in this Peter Golby spectacular is called Hold the Dream. Okay, now those of you guys who have been listening to the show for a while, you know, it's been a little over three years the show has been going now. Um, you know that my brain is kind of insane, right? So I'm hearing a little bit of an inflection of a song called Sweet Talk from Head First. There's just something in the riff there in the beginning that reminds me of that song. Um, it's probably very abstract. You know, my brain does what it does. I'm not responsible for it. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, but it does remind me a little bit of that. I love the blend of keyboards, especially in that last part of the, the verse that we heard there. Very common style for the 80s, uh, but I love it. I love that pad in the background in the first part of the vocals. Um, the whole thing is just a very, very cohesive song. And it just has such a beautiful flow and sound to it. The vocals are so strong on this one. Um, and, you know, it's it's a theme, too, through the album that I really feel like any of these songs could have easily been licensed or maybe could still be licensed for any film or television project, especially back in the 80s. The the movies that we had back then, we had like the after school specials. We had the, you know, the regular movies that came out at the theater and then eventually some of them on VHS. Um, definitely had a style that could have fit a lot of those movies or or even a Rocky montage. Um, they were They were not short of songs in this style. Our third song on the album is called, oh, this, this just sounds beautiful, doesn't it? I Found Real Love. I don't know if this was intended or not. Maybe just 
a subconscious metaphor, maybe just something that I'm picking up. But I like that his voice has a little bit less of an edge on this one. I like that he's singing a little more gently here. It's kind of like love has taken the edge off of it and he doesn't need to be as assertive or as upfront or forward. He can just, you know, relax a little because he's in love. He feels good. So it could just be something that I'm picking up on that wasn't intentional, but that's that's what I'm getting out of it. I think it's an absolutely beautiful song. Um, I love that opening. I think the keys are really cool. Um, it has a nice, interesting vibe to it, too. You don't know really where it's going and with those uh, keys coming in. Um, if there were anything on the album that were off balance, I'd say that, that was those little sweeps on the keys at the very beginning might be just slightly too loud. Apart from that, I can't, I honestly can't pick anything else out that I would say maybe that could be adjusted a little more, but it's certainly livable. You know, it's not anything that stands out to me and makes me say, oh my God, I can't listen to this song. Not at all. It's just something that I happen to notice, you know, and again, you know, being an engineer for 30 years, probably pick up on a few of those kind of things. You know, there's something about my ears that anytime something isn't balanced, and I think everybody that does that job has that, there's just something I, I heard that wasn't quite 100% right. So uh, very slightly different. I would have just taken that down, maybe just a, a couple of decibels, no big deal by any means, but it's a, it's a great song. It has such a warmth and uh, a loving feel to it. I mean, the idea of just saying, I found what love is. I found somebody that I feel that connected to and that just wows me in every way. I mean, that is a pretty special thing. And so I think it's it's portrayed very, very well in the song. It's a beautiful piece. Uh, another just great, absolutely great track on the album. And speaking of great tracks, that leads us to our fourth song already. We're, we're on song four, and this is called Chance of a Lifetime. So this one's a little bit heavier. Um, it comes in with uh, a little bit more powerful of a guitar. The synths are, are definitely diminished in the background. I don't think that's a mis mixing issue. I, I really feel like that was an intentional blend that way. But it sounds good. Um, really powerful, though. You know, it really does. And then when his vocals come in, of course, it just heightens the song that much more. But I do like the heavy opening. I love the bass guitar on this song. I think it was played very, very well or programmed very, very well, I should say. Uh, there's a nice guitar and key solo in this one as well. Um, really a good, solid song. And it's nice to have, you know, we're we're five or four songs in at this point. So it's really nice to have something that kind of picks it up a little bit here. If uh, if everyone was a little bit slower of a tempo and, you know, a little a little more, um, you know, on that that side of not edgy, then uh, I think at this point of the album, I think people would have started checking out a little bit. So I like that they placed that song here. I think it flows very well on the album. And it just it's it's just like a little uh, if you've ever been in a candle store. Uh, one that really knows what they're doing. And they have these little bowls of coffee beans around. And so coffee beans are supposed to refresh your senses. So if you're in a candle store, by the time you've, you've sniffed the third candle, you know, your senses are really kind of a little bit on overload and you don't really know 
everything that's in the next scent that you're smelling, it's kind of diminished. And so uh, they use coffee beans. You're supposed to sniff the coffee beans and that kind of refreshes your, your uh, palate. So I think that this is a great place for this song because I think it's very much like if people were starting to say, okay, you know, all the songs are kind of around the same tempo. They have a similar feel to them, a similar theme and might start zoning out a little bit. This is perfect because this will just like pull them right out of that. And uh, it's a really, really intelligent placement on this album. Um, Wow. Speaking of great songs, our next song is called Mona Lisa Smile. such an interesting musical sound to it. You know, it's, it's, I love the delay on the vocals. I think that's really nice. There's something else going on with that. I don't know if it's something in the reverb or, or what, but it kind of makes the, uh, the decaying vocals seem a little bit wobbly, which I like that adds a, a really, it adds another level of depth to the song, which I think is really cool, but I love how the music sounds on this. There's just something about that combination of sounds that is, uh, really warm, You know, the whole song sounds really warm and inviting, but it's got a great progression. And uh, I just can't get enough of this one, to be honest. This this might be my favorite or one of my favorites. I I kind of feel like they're all my favorite, (laughs) you know, Um, but it's it's just got an amazing tonal texture to it especially on the guitars there. I, I think it's a, a very well-written and very well-performed song as I do on all of these. And, and you know, I hope, I, like I said, I hope I'm not sounding too redundant or stale on my review because all the songs just have this this quality to them that's very consistent. And even though, you know, on some songs, maybe this instrument, instrument is a little bit louder, on some songs that instrument is, um, this one, the drums are pretty heavy in the beginning. I like that there's like a mini fade in you know, it's not fading in from zero, but there's kind of a little bit, the first couple of hits are quiet and then they come into that, that final volume level that they'll stay at, but that's pretty neat. But yeah, I just love the feel of the song. There's just something about the music in that verse. That's really quite magical. So that brings us to our next song, which is actually the halfway point on the album. This is called They'll Never Find Us. And we did talk about this one a little bit on the show. I love how this song really portrays that feeling that no matter what's going on, love can just make it all work. You know, we'll be together. We'll take on the world. We'll win. We'll get away from everybody who's against us. You know, all those themes 
that are so commonly associated with that, especially when there's, you know, any kind of antagonist in the, in the situation um, or, you know, just the, the person is resistant and you need to convince them. It's like, those are the things that we always go to. Right. And I love the way that they're portrayed in this song. I think it's a wonderful song. It's got a really uplifting spirit to it. And that really just supports the the content of the story. Um, just another one. I think it's really, really cool. It's nice and upbeat. Um, that riff that just did it in, it, it's just got that, we're going to get there, you know. Um, God, it's a, it's a cool song for sure. I really like it. Uh, that brings us to our next song, which is called I Used to Be Your Lover. Obviously, things did not go well. It could just be the way that the song ripped from the CD to my computer so that I could play it on the show. But there is a little bit of uh, background noise on this one. And, uh, you know, it would make sense if you think about, you know, we're not together anymore. My life is chaotic. Metaphorically, it would, it would work very well to have some, uh, you know, a little bit of crazy distortion or something in the background of the song. And so there's just a little bit of like chittering that I'm hearing. It's hard to to nail exactly how to describe it because I don't there aren't really words specific for background different kinds of background noise that I know of. Um, but in any case, I, I really like the feel of it. It kind of peters out once the the vocals really kick in, but in the beginning it's there. Um, but it does have a little bit different of a sound to it. Um, I think it's a very powerful song. And thinking of this on a, a visual scale. You know, thinking of like, you know, videos for Abominog and things that were coming out in the 80s and how um, music was portrayed. It was very much that the singer was like the lead guy in the story. And then there would just be a band there for some reason. <laughs> you know, if you think of songs like, um, oh, um, Separate Ways by Journey, I think would be a really good example of that. It's like it's it's Steve Perry's story. And then the band just appears playing instruments in the air. Um, really, really bizarre. But uh, there was a lot of that kind of stuff in that time. And thinking of uh, what a video might have been, I'm picturing like Peter walking down a street at night. He's got his hands stuffed into his light jacket pockets and he's just telling the story. He's, he's singing to the camera, which is the object of his affection. It's a very common style video for those days. Um, don't really know what they were doing for videos much in the 90s because I didn't pay a whole lot of attention. But uh, I was a huge fan of videos in the 80s. I'm really conflicted about music needing a visual representation. I've talked about that on the show before for you guys that have been listening for a while. I I, I get it from a marketing perspective, but as a musician, as a, as a composer, um, I, I really hate sometimes that we need a visual thing to attract a listener to give a song a chance. 
uh, bugs the shit out of me. But anyway, uh, it's a great song. So if there had been a video for it, uh, I think that would have been good. There would have been steam coming out of all the, um, oh, what do you call them? Those uh, uh, sewer grates. You know, as he walks down the street, there would have been steam coming out of all of those because it would have been in, in the winter or in a, on a rainy night. That's just the way that a lot of those videos were done. Um, but it's a great song. I, I think it really shows um, a certain extension of emotion because most of the stuff has been, you know, pretty upbeat and happy and conquering up to this point. And then there's just that, you know what, this just sucks. It didn't work out. And um, yeah, it, it's an interesting song. I think you have to have that though. You have to have a contrast. And while this isn't, this album wasn't written as a concept album, it's not a continuing story. It does kind of have that feel to it. Boy meets girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl. And that's kind of where we're at. The question would be, do we get boy gets girl at the end? You know, uh, but since it's not a concept album, it, it, it would be irrelevant, but it's certainly easy to see the the thread of that. Speaking of interesting stories, I find the story on this one extremely fascinating, and I'll get into why later. But let's take a listen to Take Another Look. I remember the night we fell through the ice. It was so cold. takes the blame do we start a new game cause the wind blows the crystals of love we tumble we fell when our eyes closed the shadows of love what I find interesting about this, I, I love the sound of it, especially that that keyboard that we're hearing right there uh, as the song uh, clip faded out a little bit. Just that sort of chittering keyboard in the background. I really like that. Another very common thing from that time in music. That's something I, I feel like we've lost, you know, because it, music has just changed so much since the 80s. Um, it was a great time in music for me. I think part of that was because of my age at the time, I was born in 72. So by the time you get around to the 80s, I had a pretty good understanding of what music was, started, you know, kind of digging into how it works, started playing an instrument at that time. So it it was really, for me, um, a very, very wonderful uh, time in music. And um, but but the thing that gets me about this song is there's really a potential twofold message. Obviously, the thing is, is take another look at me. I'm not going to show you that what happened between us is getting to me, right? I'm going to show you I'm strong. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get you to want me back is is kind of the the what I get out of it. But there's another thought that pops into my head as I'm listening to the song. And, and while this, this strays away from the actual meaning of the song, so this is totally on me. I'm thinking there's there's another message that could have been in here of, you know, take another look now that you've gotten away um, you've gained some perspective, like take another look at this, take another look at me now that you're seeing me with maybe a fresh set of eyes, but yet with the eyes of experience, um, what do you see? Maybe you see something different. And I think that's something we don't do enough in life. To be honest, we don't, we, we make a judgment about something. And once we've done that, that's what it always is. Unless there's something that comes along 
that forces us to change our perspective. Like, let's say you meet somebody and you're like, wow, they're kind of a jerk. You know, I don't like them. And you just, you know, you butt heads, you never get along. Every time you run into this person, you're just annoyed by them. You hate the fact that you're even in the same room with them. And then something happens and come to find out they're actually a really cool person. It was just something about that time when you two met that set that precedence that you aren't going to like each other. And that actually happened to me with a coworker years and years ago. And then um, we were uh, we were at a party. This girl that I just started dating got there before I did. And apparently he had a much better opinion of me than I did of him because he went to her and said, I heard that you're Scott's girlfriend. And she's like, yeah. And he said, he's really cool. And I had no idea because I, I felt like there was just conflict between us, you know, and I don't know what it was. I don't know what he felt. We never really talked about it. We just kind of like went on and we were fine from there. So I think there is some merit to that concept, but I do love the, just just the concept of that. But I also love that concept of, you know, I I want you to see me in a good light. I want to feel strong for myself, but I kind of want to feel strong for how I want you to see me because maybe, maybe things will be different. I don't know. Maybe that's not the exact intent of the song, but that's what I get out of it anyway. And yeah, that's the beauty of music, folks. It's when we hear it, what mood we're in, what is going on in our lives at that time, that day, that month, that year, what's recently happened to us what the last conversation was we had before we heard the song. All those things factor into how a song becomes a thing for us, what it means when we hear it back, what memories do we have associated with it? Um, You know, if there's an album that I listen to in the car for the first time, and it happens to be one of those rare, super overcast, you know, rainy days here in Las Vegas, which we don't get a lot of, um, had one yesterday, but we don't get a lot of them. So maybe uh, I'll have certain memories associated with that album or that song that I just heard for the first time, because it'll take me back to that time I heard it and what was going on at the time. There's quite a few songs like that, Um, weather, aromas, um, relationships, uh, you know, desires, whatever's going on in your world at that time often becomes associated with those songs. So um, I was, you know, I'm in a really good place. I'm, I'm really glad that I heard the album when I was open to hearing new music, when I was very optimistic and, and that. So it was a great time for me to hear this album. Um, but I, I honestly, I would have loved it either way. I think it's fantastic. So as we wind down to the last couple of songs here, um, I do want to say, though, uh, I, I really like the epic feel of this song. I think, um, you know, there's certain songs that just have like a, an epic sound to them. They fit in with within the continuity of the rest of the songs, but there's just something that feels bigger or different about them. And I, I definitely feel this song has that. It, it, it really does feel kind of epic. Uh, love the backing vocals on this one, too. I think they're very well layered. Um, there's just something that really stands out about them to me. I can't say exactly what it is, but this song, I mean, of all the songs, uh, this song is a real um, a standout on this album. Um, but moving on to the next one, this is Perfection. Close the book. 
continuing along with the, the thread of you know a, kind of a, a history of, of of two people together uh, even though again this is not specifically a concept album uh this kind of fits in so going from the last song into this saying why don't we just give this another try while you're looking for perfection let's let's just be together you know and the hope would be that she would then see the perfection in him and say oh i i had the perfection all along i just didn't know it but at the same point, it's kind of sold as, you know, while you're not doing anything, let's just, you know, why don't we just keep this going? You can keep looking, but let's hang out. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's such an interesting concept. And I think about people that I've known in relationships, because I really haven't dated much, but I, I think about people I've known in relationships. I'm like, yeah, you know what? That kind of is how it goes. It's like the, you know, the five stages of grief. There's like certain things that happen in a certain progression. Like, you know, she dumps you. You're like, no, you can't do this to me. I'm dumping you. Then it's like, well, this really sucks. I wish you'd come back. And well, I'm not going to let you get to me. And then let's let's just get back together. You know, it's just follows that progression so beautifully. And, um, it, you know, I know that these songs were hand selected. And I, I just think that the order of them they work musically. I mean, the order of them musically is fantastic, but it's really interesting to to kind of pick up on that progression of two people in their history as as well. Um, I, I find it fascinating, but the song itself is fantastic. Um, it, it's really that just keep us together theme, but it has such a great sound to it. It's not that uplifting. It's like a cautiously uplifting song, which really supports the vocal message, right? Um, but it does have a really nice guitar solo in it. Um, it. It's one that I think, you know, well, along with all of them, I think that you really enjoy. So when you check out the whole album in its entirety, uh, remember to check out that guitar solo on song number nine, especially. Now that moves us on to I Built This House. I really love this song. It has such a warmth to it. Um, it, it. It's really, the feel of it to me is just kind of like looking back, you know, looking back over life, um, just something that I'm getting totally on my own from, from the musical standpoint, um, not really talking about the actual lyrics of the song, but it's definitely got a drive to it. Um, I love the sound of it. I love the the simplicity of the music here in the beginning, especially it's really full. The song sounds big. It sounds like there's no space in it at all, but there's actually not a whole lot going on, which is really cool to me. It's great writing, um, but I love the sound. I love the warmth. It really stands out, I think, on this song more so than the rest of the album. I mean, the whole album has a warmth to it, that analog warmth that we really miss nowadays. We, we spend a lot of time trying to recreate that in the digital world with tape plugins. But it, but this song, especially for some reason, there's something about the music that has a really nice warmth to me. Um, 
But one thing I haven't talked about, I don't think I mentioned it, is the reverb on Peter's vocals. I just love what they've done on this album. It makes the vocals blend in very well. Uh, When the word stops, the word doesn't stop. It's not a light reverb. It's not drowning in reverb. You could hear what he's saying very clearly, but it's got just a really nice decay on the reverb so that everything just kind of all blends together and you're not hearing sounds start and stop so much as you are just hearing them fade out into the ether until the next sound comes in or until it's taken over by the sound that's playing underneath of it. Very well crafted. Um, that's that's not always easy to find just that right reverb tone, but I, I would have been hard-pressed to say that they could have done better, t- to be honest. I think it, it just makes the whole album blend so well together. Um, I've worked with that kind of stuff a lot when I've done vocal work, um, it's probably my least favorite thing to do in in the, the mixing process is to just find that right reverb for the vocals. I, I get so picky and I overthink it all the time, but they they stopped right when they should have. This is absolutely perfect for, for my ears anyway. Um, that brings us to the, the final track on the album called The Last Time. As Peter mentioned, this, this was also written with Tina Turner in mind. Let's see how she would have sounded. Well, let's see if we can think of how she would have sounded. First off, the first thing that strikes me is the tempo. I think this is a fantastic tempo for the last song on an album. Sometimes like a really, uh, you know, ballady or slow tempo is is really nice to end an album with. But I think this is a really good tempo. Um, Love the layering of it. I love that rhythm guitar. You know, it, it just keeps the song moving forward. But what really comes out at me in this song is the uh, the rhythm of the vocals. You know, they're not lines that are just delivered as typical lines where they're all spaced out. It's almost like he speeds up and goes down a little bit, speeds up and goes down a little bit. That is super cool. Very hard to write that kind of stuff and make it work for more than one or two lines in a song. Um, But very, very well done here. Uh, I I like it. I think that it makes the song even more interesting than it already is, but it's got such a good feel to it. It has that, that element that just makes me want to start the album right again as soon as this song ends, you know, just just leave the CD on repeat, let it go, because I want to hear the album again. Um, there is a certain magic to that kind of writing. A lot of times when an album is done, I'm like, okay, that was great. I really like that album. What's next? But there are some times where I hear an album and I'm like, I don't want this to be over. I know I just listened to the whole thing, but I want more. And I'll start listening to the album again, or maybe I'll pick three or four songs to hear again. And this album definitely has that ending. So there is a a little bit more magic as a gift at the end of the album. It's just so well constructed. The whole sound of the album is very pleasing. 
especially from somebody who, you know, was kind of a child of the 80s. I mean, yes, I grew up in the 70s, but I, that was a lot of Motown music growing up in Detroit, um, a lot of Supremes and Four Tops, a lot of, um, you know, uh, not a lot of disco. I, I was never huge into that. Although If I Can't Have You by Yvonne Elliman really was a, a favorite song of mine. I love that song. Um, trying to think of the the right word. Um, oh, The Wrecking Crew. Uh, a lot of music that was done by the Wrecking Crew, uh, I grew up on that. And it really wasn't, I don't think, because I lived in Detroit or just outside Detroit. I think it was just, that's the music that my parents were into. We played a lot of music in the house. That stereo was was working quite often. And uh, we had a whole, you know, a bunch of LPs and then our 45s. And there was often music playing in the house. And that was a lot of the stuff that we played, as I recall. I could be completely wrong. My memory could be just totally shot. But that's that's what I'm remembering. Um, a lot of 45s, you know, a lot of 45s. Um, but yeah, it, it, it definitely is a great album. I'm so glad that Peter was able to release it. I'm glad that Cherry Red Records jumped in and did their part to get it out there. Uh, you know, there's been some really nice surprises in this last year for me, especially from Cherry Red Records, a uh, really cool company, and uh, they're very nice people. But this is just a, a great experience. And, and to think of it just as an album, you know, just to take it as an album, highly enjoyable. I will listen to this over and over again. But to think about it on the grander scale, what it means for this album to be out, to have Peter come back and uh, and be open to talking about his experiences and and everything, and for me to get the chance to speak with him, that is that's something I will treasure. Um, I would say until the end of my days, but who knows what happens at the end of my days? Maybe into eternity, who knows? But uh, I really appreciate Peter taking some time to talk to me. Maybe we'll get a chance to do it again. But thank you for releasing this album. Thank you for uh, your time and uh, the effort of bringing this out to us and and for the engineer to make it sound so great, for the recording to be so great, for you know the musicians to, to make it uh, just this wonderful collection of songs. I can't say enough good things about it, obviously sleep. And you guys that have been listening, you know me well enough. If I don't like something, I'll say it. But there's really nothing I don't like. There's nothing I can I can say. I wish this was different or, you know, for if it were me, I would have done this. I think it's it's just a completely cohesive and well-done project. So, thank you guys. I hope that you have enjoyed my review of this. And uh, on a personal note, I know I talked about this at the very beginning of the episode, but that was like two hours ago. Um, for you guys who have checked out the album, The Forgotten Puppet Show, that just came out this past Wednesday, thank you guys very much. It is now available on Spotify and iTunes. Amazon will be following soon. I'm sure they're always a little bit later than everyone else and seem to have their own price point which is always strange to me. Um, but you can also get it on my Bandcamp site. Go to my website, scotthaskin.com. It has the link there on the front page, and which will eventually be moved to its own page. But because it's the new album, it's on the front. Uh, and, and check that out. If you guys like the album, if you don't like the album, please feel free to leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, or uh, I'm sorry, on uh, iTunes or Apple Music, uh, really anywhere, but that's probably where I'll see them if uh, if you put it there. Uh, and also, even if you just want to give it a rating, that's fine too. One to five stars, whatever you think it deserves. It is a little bit of an experimental album. I will say it's not like my album Dreamscape. Uh, it's, it's a little more on the experimental side, but thanks again to Dave White, who did some beautiful work on my song Try Again, which is song seven. I hope that one gets shazammed a lot. 
I seem to be shazammed in Africa a ton. I don't know why, but I seem to be uh, really cool. But anyway, thank you guys so much for joining me for this long marathon episode. I haven't done one this long in a while, but it really deserved it. I mean, this is just a fantastic album and I hope that you will pick it up. Uh, maybe you can still get one of those uh, first couple hundred autograph copies. I know there's it, there's no more than 199 left because I have one of them, but I'm sure there's not that many left, if any at all. So grab that. That is the one that you can get directly through Cherry Red Records. The link will be in the show notes. And thank you guys very much for joining me. We'll be back on our normal Wednesday schedule. I don't remember what I'm reviewing next week, but here's what's on deck uh, I'll probably do a bonus episode next Saturday too, um, just because there's a lot of new stuff that's come out. So we've got Roger Glover's Snapshot re-release that I'll be reviewing. Also, uh, the new 2021 edition of Winter Carols by Blackmore's Night. And of course, the Turning to Crime album, the new release from Deep Purple that has met a, a lot of uh, controversy, but yet seems to be chopping t- chopping the tarts. It is... T- <laughs> Boy, I need to go to bed. It is topping the charts all over the world, which is fantastic. It might be chopping the charts as well. I have no idea. But thank you guys for joining me. I will see you next Wednesday. In the meantime, we have two more episodes between now and then of your Rye Heap the Magicians podcast, also located on all of the same channels where you can get this one. So tune in and enjoy the deep dive into each individual song. Cheers. Cheers.